The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Okay. Bonjour, Monsieur Brando. Uh, buenos nachos. <laughs> We're back in France today, eh? Comment tu, mon ami? I did not wear my beret. I did not bring my croissants. I would like some, what is it, pan, pan au chocolat? Am I saying it right? Oui, pan au chocolat. Pan au chocolat. Yes, exactly. Today, Brando, we have today, aujourd'hui, a bon anniversaire. Okay. <laughs> Should I see a doctor about this? <laughs> what is it? We got a big happy day for the captain. Ah. Le Capitaine Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, happy birthday to the old Jacques man. A Gemini. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? thought he'd been Cancer or Pisces, one of, one of us water people. Well, originally, you know, he wanted to be a pilot. Well, I know. He wanted to be an airman. There's nothing wrong with being an airman. It's a noble endeavor. Later, he would get his water wings, if you know what I mean. <laughs> But yeah, he, um, what was it, uh, 1910, he was born, so 111 years ago. Wow, seems like yesterday. Old JC came into the world, and uh, today we have a, another little Jacques Cousteau story. So, bienvenue dans le grand podcast de Blanger tout le monde. <laughs> I wish the, the listeners could see your face right now because there's, uh, there's a lot going on here, people. Welcome to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. You're here with old uh, Monsieur James. You're here with Monsieur Mutt. And, and I'm senor. I'm, I'm, I'm going full Spanish on you. What I can remember of my Espanol. <laughs> and Senor Schwartz. And today we're going to have a, a, a fun little story about Jacques Cousteau. Written from the pen of Monsieur Cousteau. Himself? Actually, I think it was officially penned by James Dugan, but uh, kind of helped, helped write these books. But this is from Jacques Cousteau's book, The Living Sea, like the, uh, particularly talking about the very first expedition that they did out to the Red Sea. But it's a fun little story about the Calypso, about the, the original team, about uncharted waters and sharks and deep diving, 200 feet of water diving. I thought this would be just a nice, fun, easy little story to get into. Timing out great after our 
intense couple of weeks of talking about educational philosophy just to get back into good old scuba diving with the man on his birthday, old Captain Cousteau. Aye, aye, Captain. Oi, 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 oi. <clears throat> okay, so there's a, I mean, there, there's a ton of stories. I mean, there, I mean you talk about a, a man with a million tales. We could do this whole Great Dive podcast, you know, 220 20. episodes, you know, <laughs> probably of different Jacques Cousteau stories. Or, and I think they're always fun, like, especially to, to think back to the time in, you know, 1950, where they had built up, a, 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 you know, hundreds of dives, probably thousands of dives on the, on the Aqualung by, by early 1950s. And it was less than 10 years old of technology, you know. Right, a lot of uh, learning going on, and you know, you just opened up a whole new world to the human being to be able to be mobile underwater for a uh, good amount of time. Yeah, and uh, that coral reef just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper, and getting <laughs> darker and darker blue. And 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 this is back in the days when they really didn't know what was going to happen. You know, next. Well, James. Yeah, isn't this the whole thing of uh, of scuba diving? The explorer spirit that beckons most divers is just like in the cave. Come on in, just a little further. It's going to be incredible what you see over here as you continually see more wet rocks and more wet rocks. <laughs> but the same thing with the open water, right? Yeah, that temptress keeps drawing you a little bit further and further in or a little bit higher and higher up the mountain or a little bit deeper and deeper underwater. Yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to go you know, mountain climbing and make it a quarter of the way up. Everybody wants to get to the top. It's the lure of the unknown. You think, uh, I mean, that's just, that's just human nature as well. I mean, we want to know what is that over there. It's a little bit of the grass is always greener on the other side where, where you really don't know what's going on there. So you think there's something super exciting. And, and there is in the underwater world, especially where Jacques opening up whole new worlds, universe of uh, life and the environment, the beauty, it's incredible. Oh, yeah, no kidding. And they're literally at a time where going an extra 10 feet deeper and seeing something different is remarkable and, and changing what we know of, of life on planet Earth, right? But they just blew right on past <laughs> that. <laughs> as well as pushing into the unknown of the physiological effects of scuba diving, how man adapts to being underwater, breathing compressed gas for longer and longer amounts of time, how it affects them. So they were actually finding some of that stuff out. I mean, yes, there were divers prior to Jacques, but they were hard hat for the most part, right? right? Yep. Yeah, so there was people already doing it. Right, right. Just diving. not on the freedom of, of scuba. Not on that limited gas supply that you took with you, um, and not free swimming, obviously. So there were hurdles to overcome, and I'm sure there were a ton of close calls. Oh, yeah, no kidding. And uh, it, it took a lot of guts and internal strength, intestinal fortitude to do. Like when you look at even, even divers today, you, know, you go to the training quarry, like we go to down to good old Gilboa there, there's... Uh, there's an apprehension when you when you get to the edge of that drop off, you know, where it drops off into the 
the deep end of the quarry, you know, from 40 <laughs> feet down to, you know, nearly 140 feet. You know, you can see a lot of divers get that panicky, panicky uh, feeling of just looking at it drop into the blackness. But I mean, could you imagine being, you know, in you know the 40s and 50s when this is just getting going and, and literally the drop off where they are is into the abyss? Like it, it's an unknown depth. Is it a hundred feet further? Is it a billion feet further? There's no no real clue of, of what's going on. Right. Let's go so, check that out. Is what goes through. And they that. were doing yeah. it. Yeah, they were they were dropping dropping over and doing it. Yeah, you can watch those new divers, especially when they get to that that edge where the wall, you know, the bottom drops out, and you just have the wall there. You can see that look in their eyes. Some of them are genuinely curious, but uh, yeah, they get that. Whoa! What the hell's going on down there? Yeah, you, you either have the the apprehension, the call, or the blind curiosity, the, <laughs> the call, call of the siren. It's beckoning you. The siren. That is the. That is exactly what it is, too. Be dangerous. It can be dangerous. Just a little bit further. I've gotten my ass in trouble going just a little bit further. Of the many times I've scared myself, many have been. Come on, just a little bit further. It's really cool over here. You're gonna really like this. You need to capture this on a video, and then you find yourself in place. Maybe you think twice about being it. Right. Right. I, I think that could be the title of my autobiography <laughs> of, of my life. Every bad decision I've made was, you know that you should have s- said no more like a minute ago. But no, just a little bit more, a little bit further. What's it going to hurt? One more. All right, so in his book, The Living Sea, Jacques Cousteau tells us more fun, exciting adventure tales in a similar sort of a feel as to his original work, uh, The Silent World. And the book starts off with them on their really their first expedition in 1951 into the Red Sea. And this is on board the Calypso, right? This is on board the Calypso. Procure an old, what is it, Navy minesweeper? Wasn't that an, an old British minesweeper from the uh, Navy, the British Royal Navy? Sure was, Mike. Oh, spot of tea you with stole my so, mind. Mate. The only thing I can say with super exaggerated British accent, eh? A spot of tea with me Calypso, eh? Me and me mates. The Calypso crew was hanging out in the Red Sea off of Saudi Arabia, off the far sand reefs of Saudi Arabia. I've been there. Have you? Off of uh, a little island called Abulat. Were you, were you there? I was uh, flying all over the place there. Jeddah is a little bit north. We used to stop in there. There's Mecca. But yeah, it's all over that area. It's a pretty cool place. Sand, 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 sand. Beautiful ocean. <laughs> you mean beautiful sea. What is the difference between an ocean and a sea? Uh, just well, a couple exactly. letters. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's basically the same thing, but it's size, right? Isn't it, isn't that just really the the differentiating? What's the difference between a boat and a ship? What's the difference between a, a sandwich and a and a hoagie? What's the difference between a hoagie and a sub and a sub? These are the philosophical questions that Brando and I have. 
on a on a long two and a half hour road trip. This is what the Great Dad Podcast is all about. These are the, the tough concepts that TGDP tackles, and we tackle it on a daily basis. The capstan swallowed the anchor chain with a cheerful rattle, old Captain Cousteau says. From the poor peak of the boats when Jean Bertrand sang out, Exactly. That's what I would have sang out as well. That's how you would have said it. Wouldn't that what you would have said it? What does that mean, James? The anchor is high and clear. It sounds beautiful in French. <laughs> oui. L'encre au tecle. You had me at l'encre, whatever the hell you said. <laughs> l'encre. There we go. L'encre. L'encre. On the bridge, my old French Navy comrade, Skipper Francois Saoul, grumbled, The weather is too good. It can only get worse. And I said, old Captain Cousteau, This is not like your old Cape Horn. However, I liked Saoul to feel that our precious new vessel was surrounded by evil. Evil. Especially now that she really was, he says. Between us and the day's diving grounds on the outer Farsan banks were ten miles of poorly charted, shallow coral heads and reefs. I pushed both motors forward and climbed above the wheelhouse to the high observation bridge. From there, Calypso looked small enough to snake her way through the half-concealed obstacles. In the faint light, I took bearing from the island features we had named aircraft carrier, Petite Termitière, and Scotch Carn. Sao swerved to avoid reefs and headed due west. Could you imagine the old cool days of being on the Calypso, being on that team back then, how badass that would be? Cool isn't the word. Yeah, that'd be uh, a, a life well lived right there. Especially, especially on the days. I mean, could you imagine the, the the first week when they first set sail, and Cousteau like just brokered some deal with <laughs> BP Oil, you know, and they just got this big wallop of cash. The boat is full of wine and cognac and baguettes and cigarettes and yes, and that first party once they're fully out to sea when they're, they're having dinner just that's why you gotta love the french because priorities we're going to go exploring it's going to be a lot of hard work it's going to be dangerous at times we are going to live it up with vino and yeah 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 we're gonna enjoy it and there's a great drawing in this book a little like just pen pen and ink drawing very uh picasso-esque that kind of shows lunch aboard the calypso can you, can you see uh, that back all? it up just a little it's it's out, it's focused on your fingers they, oh that it's you know you got oh it was there keep going tilt it tilt the top down a little bit a little bit more to your left to your right okay stand on one leg jesus christ jesus christ <laughs> No, it won't. Fo- it won't catch focus because of that blurred background setting you got. Yeah, it's oh it's still not. It still thinks it's background. There's nothing. Uh, nothing human catching it. Anyway, what is it called? I got you better. You're gonna draw it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Hang on, I'm looking for pencils. <laughs> Pastels. Oh, that's pretty cool right there. Dude, I'd like to have that hanging. I'd like to have it that is, hanging it? in my house. But if that doesn't capture the feeling of 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 what it must have been like, just everybody sitting around that big table, talking, bottles of wine everywhere, gesturing, just passionately conversing. Who drew Who drew that uh, illustration? It's pretty. I mean, it's nice. It uh, it says in here that it was actually a line drawing from James Dugan's journals. Oh, okay. Because so, uh, he was hanging out with the crew on board the boat, which he did, he did from time to time. And he and uh, old Cousteau were buddies, and he kind of helped them write these books because James Dugan was a you know a professional and a historian, writer, yes, an author and historian. I I hope I go down and. You know, when I finally get my Wikipedia page, James Mott, old James quotation mark, old Jamesy end quotation mark Mott, co-host of the Great Die podcast, historian. <laughs> oh, you did try to make us a Wikipedia page. Dude, I had it all made up. And then and they, they deleted it like, we're not including these idiots. Well, there wasn't enough like info out there to for us to get like validated it was under the diver wikipedia thing whatever that was called oh maybe uh maybe there is now maybe we'll have to try it again you just might be right it'll make my dad proud dad look at i made it i'm on wikipedia i'm on wikipedia i'm somebody (laughs) below me in the chart room was my wife simone Manned the echo sounder, interpreting its pings through a headset and calling off soundings to a bearded, turbaned Arab on the bridge wing who relayed them to Sao and me. The native was an Arabic-speaking French parachute lieutenant, Jean Dupas, detached to us for the cruise. So he was an active-duty French military? Yeah. Wow. It's nice to have connections like that. I'm curious, though, so did the military have any um, interest? In other words, was Jacques performing perhaps clandestine operations, as well as under the guise of exploration? And But you got a military person on board, makes people question. Well, and they needed, they needed an Arabic-speaking member, right, just to, just to communicate while they were over there. Right, but it's the military. And I... And I'm pretty sure he got funding for this um, from the government as well as BP, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I know BP was involved because they were hot on the heels of going you know, into the ocean looking for oil. Right. right? But I'm just saying, having the military actually give, even funding, but the military sending troops to help you, whether it be speaking Arabic or whatever the capacity... The military only does that when it serves the military interests, usually. Now, in the book Jacques Cousteau, The Sea King, by Brad Matson, he says that after its harrowing beginning, Cousteau's first expedition to the Red Sea with the Calypso was a 38-day triumph, and the geologists found evidence of oil-bearing shale and volcanic mineral deposits using those echo sounders that old Simone was down there in the chart room working on. Oh, yeah. 
Under my lofty perch, Calypso was awakening. I looked down on the white bonnet of Fernand Hannon, the cook, as he brought a pot of coffee to the bridge. Below decks, René Montoupé, the chief engineer, started our clattering compressors, which supply air for the day's dives, with a noise that finished sleep for all. On the diving deck aft, Dumas, Beltran, and Jacques Artaud, our amphibious cameraman, charged the triple tank aqualungs and protected them from the impending heat with water-soaked mats. Matt, it's like I'm right there, you know, just, you know. <laughs> old Jamesy Dugan had old a way with Jamesy words D- like old Jamesy Mott. Yeah, yeah. It would be, you know, an old Jamesy Mott, our chief <laughs> tank monkey. <laughs> carries me bottles down, down, down to the trans. Can you do a French monkey noise? Two French monkeys. The sun came up like a blow, implacable to the skin. I inflated my lungs in eager anticipation of the big day. The program was deep exploration of the virgin reefs of Shab Sulem on the seaward fringe of the far sands. We were going to investigate to a depth of 200 feet, take specimens of fixed animal life in various environmental layers, and document the reef with artificial light color photography. We also hope to determine the thickness of living coral and to outline the general topography. For years, I had looked forward to helping marine science with free diving and handheld submarine photography. Cousteau says that we swung our flat-bottomed aluminum work launch overboard. Five of us dropped in and moved to the reef. Wearing our masks, Dumas and I stepped into knee-deep water and waddled across the coral fringe which was gnarled and trenched and bursting with life. We swam to the drop-off line. In the blue crystal below were tier upon tier of majestic gray and brown sharks interweaving lazily in a slow-motion ballet. This being, you know, back in the day where the shark was the scourge of the, the sea. The shark was going to be your your money shot, really. Your, the shark was going to be the hook to get everybody in. I want to hear about the sharks. You ever seen a shark's eyes? And we know, you know, from the stuff that we did with <laughs> uh, with the Silent World stuff earlier, and, and the last Cousteau stuff. Although later in life, he would be a very big proponent of the protection of sharks. Early on. Right. Fuck him. He was old Quint. He was like, hey, Chief. You against me, you son of a bitch. 27 men go in the water. Sharks in the water. Didi and I go in the water. Sharks in the water. You ever seen a shark's eyes, Chiefy? They're like a doll's eyes. He says, we returned to the launch and conferred with Arto and Professor Pierre Drac a stocky, rosy-cheeked specialist in a fixed marine fauna and the first oceanographer to seek out the aqualung as a working tool. Dumas said, The shark problem can be handled by diving along the wall with our backs to it, so we have to watch only half the space around us. 
smart. Yeah, yeah professor. What if you got four people? You'd only have a quarter. You'd have to manage a quarter space. That's right. But the sharks have more to eat. <laughs> so there's more luring. There's more more bait there. So you might get more. It's a it's a conundrum. It's a delicate balance. If you have 12 guys, you only have to do 124th of yeah. who's with and, you. Uh, and your odds of not being lunch get better and better the more exactly. of the water. It might be your buddies. But that might attract more sharks. Exactly. These are questions they didn't know. They didn't know back then. That only the Great Dive Podcast will delve into, <laughs> this deep dive into how many people should be back to back to back to back to back in the water guarding for sharks. Professor Drock said, I'm here to collect specimens, not to turn around and watch sharks. Ooh, Professor Drock, goddammit. We're here on business, bitches. That's right. Business, not sharky shark dive. I got stuff to do down there. You guys watch out for the sharks. Cousteau says he delivered a lecture on Travaux Pratique Sous-Marine, as though he were in his classroom at the Sorbonne instead of in a broiling pan on a desolate reef with a sea full of sharks below. <laughs> a broiling pan, eh? Well, there, that, that part, they're on that little aluminum, you know, flat, flat bottom. Just He says he reviewed for us the main categories of madripores. Alcinarians, Ascidians, and calcareous algae. And then, he, and then he slapped me in the face to wake me up after that review. <laughs> I want the sharks, Chiefy. That's right. This is before Cousteau and Didi even knew what in the hell a calcareous algae was. <laughs> yeah, was you mean say. those rocks? You had me at calcareous you algae. <laughs> you want another one of those rocks? Just because you put names on them doesn't make them interesting. Right. <laughs> uh, do you think this was back in the day where, where Cousteau was t- still calling them... Purple rock. Squirty <laughs> snails and, and sea rocks. Exactly. Old rocks like, I need the calcareous <laughs> algicarious madriporia obscura. You mean... Uh, you mean the orange rocky thingy? Shaq's calling up a few of his mates. Tell this nerd overboard. <laughs> you got any shock divers there, Chiefy? <laughs> I told you, no nerds on the boat. What do you do? You bring nerds. I said, Captain, Captain of the Captain, nerds. Captain, he had four cases of vintage Bordeaux wine. <laughs> okay. The nerd is welcome. Everybody welcome the nerd. Until the wine's gone, the nerd has his free reign on the uh, Calypso. Cousteau says, I could not help thinking that his diving experience was a bit thin. Drock had been the first academian to pass our tough professional diving course at the Toulon Navy Undersea Research Group. But since then, he made few difficult descents and only one to the 200-foot level that we were facing today. So he took their very rigorous course and then just did the typical i got the card yeah eh, play around in 20 feet on a couple dives and now he's on expedition with Cousteau on the clip so they're gonna do a 200 footer well yeah i like how he put he was the first academian also known on uh, in great dive podcast lingo as <laughs> the nerd the nerd the nerd coming on board he is but... the first nerd to take a tough rigorous Cousteau class at Toulon. 
So there's a lot of stereotyping going on right there, that the nerd is, is not physically... Although when you do, you know, especially back in the day, if you're an academian, your face is in books, not on the internet. You're not listening to it as you're at the gym. Right. Your face is in books, and you're eating Cheetos, <laughs> reading. And... Well, remember, he was a stocky, rosy cheek specialist in the marine fauna. I was a f- fucking stocky, rosy cheek specialist. God damn it. Yeah, but you were this a stocky you, but, but you were a stocky rosy cheek specialist of old monk rum back in your <laughs> in your days. Old monk. Not uh not marine fauna and Alcyonarians and Assidians or Madripoors. Madripoors. Love those Madripoors, man. If you are talking Madripoors, I'm in. I'm all in. Let's go. Now as the professor concluded his briefing, Cousteau said I believe the best technique for the dive will be for Didi and me to act as bodyguards for Drock. <laughs> to permit him maximum collecting time. Erto can go on his own and take pictures, and Beltran will stay in the boat, tracking our bubbles, ready for any emergency. They submerged, but I did not join them immediately. I found myself checking my equipment with a priestly solemnity. I was not exactly afraid of this dive, but I had a strong intuition that it was going to be meaningful for me. I was in an unaccustomed, individualistic mood. Interesting. Interesting. And the plot thickens. That's Jacques talking, right? Right. Yeah, that's So he's going through his equipment, and he's... He's like, I am making sure everything is correct. And I think he's kind of getting in a little mood there. Like uh, Jacques right now is going through B, W, R, A, F. That's B W R A F. Ah, right. In French. All français. All French. Bordeaux. <laughs> Wine. <laughs> Riesling. <laughs> uh, what, what would A be? A pack of cigarettes <laughs> and a French cuisine, French Fondue. bread, <laughs> fondue. There you go, fondue, fondue. I like it. So that's the French BWRAF, the jocks. Yes, he is going through his pre-dive safety check delicately. <laughs> Bordeaux, wine, Riesling, a pack of <laughs> cigarettes, <laughs> fondue, <laughs> and fondue. Let's dive. Plonger. <laughs> he says, I went in, scarcely feeling the blood-warm water on my skin. The rest of the world passed. Down along the riotous plumage of the shelf, my companions hung like marionettes waiting for me. I joined them, and we crossed the brink. Half the space below was a vertical living wall. The other half, infinity. Dumas scouted a protective rock fissure leading down, and we followed him to it. As we sank along the crack, out of nothingness appeared the nomads. Powerful jacks, bonitos with intense blue scales and silver sardinellas. They came to the wall, flirted about, and receded into the outer waters where they belonged. Flirted about. Flirting about. I thought that's what, what you did in the bars, James, flirting about. 
Not necessarily um, you, but I mean, young men, young flirty men flirting about. Yes, that's what we do. Flirting about like a couple of <laughs> silver sardinellas. <laughs> I mean, how'd you pick up your wife? I was, uh, yes, was channeling my silver sardinella. You just, you just walked in like you were a powerful jack, didn't you? <laughs> Big transparent jellyfish dragged along. Pulsating drowsily. I know that's how you. That's how you picked up your life. Just pulsating, pulsating drowsily. That's uh, that's my daily mo anymore. It says those that came too near to the reef were torn to pieces by fish as black as soot. Erto began popping flash bulbs. Fucking Erto, disturbing the peace. Professor Drock halted to pry off animal colonies with his burglar's Jimmy made notes on a plastic tablet, and plumped his samples into the string shopping bag on his belt. He dribbled his way downward, his nose to the reef, seeing alive for the first time creatures he had known only from books or as specimens disfigured and bleached in jars from formaldehyde. He was in a biotope both familiar and new to him. He was no longer with us. I felt uneasy about it and pointed him out to Dumas. We exchanged glances, confirming that we must watch him diligently. The crazy bastard's on his way down to infinity. Right, and and this is what we often talk about with... That when you're with a photographer, or in this case, oh, you know, with a sake. scientist, you know, how easy it is to get lost in the moment and forget that you're underwater. And in this case, going to 300 feet, you know, not with isolated twin 104s and, right. you know, <laughs> trimix and deco gases. You know, and- gases. This is just on air. Well, that lure, it's that lure. Now you've you've actually given it a shot of uh, steroids because you're a fish guy and these are all new to you. And, you know, as far as seeing them alive face to face in their environment, it screams of, get on down here. Come on just a little bit further. There's more. Look, yeah, there's when more. The, when that siren speaks to you, it's... It's tough, and it happens so much with new divers that just get lost in that underwater world of the majestic beauty, you know, the colors, the life, the movement. I mean, it's easy to get wrapped up in it, and it's so – I mean, that that's one of the things that I try to capture to a new student is – Listen, you are your awareness is going to be stolen by by this world, but you always got to remember you're a human being that has that has to get home safely. First and first and foremost, what you see is those are all, you know, cherries on top. You can always come back and and try to get more cherries. If you make make yeah. it up, if you if you concentrate on the game at hand, but that's where a healthy dose of paranoia or a healthy level of paranoia is to your advantage. Meaning, Absolutely, you know Murphy's always with you. Something can and will go wrong. If you keep that in your head, you'll hopefully keep getting drawn back to where's my team, where's where am I at? Where's yeah, and, and and the chances of being on the winning side of that coin are better and better if you can keep that that mental check. Jacques does a really good job at like pointing out how easy it is to get lost into this in these next couple paragraphs. And he says, I stood off from that dainty yet majestic cliff. It was hard to be a mere bodyguard. The coral took unexpected shapes and hues, and there were skulls of dwarfs and giants. 
tufts of ochre and magenta mingled with petrified mauve bushes and red tubapore fabricated like honeycombs. Superb parasols of acropora spread over idling fish that were painted with electric pigments of red and gold. Through this splendid, tilted forest, humpbacked sea snails traveled their winding ways. In reef recesses, there were enough trindica clams to furnish fonts of the churches of the chis. Um, uh, let me let me fix that. Christian, Christendom. Uh, okay, church. Uh, he says, in reef recesses, there were enough. <laughs> one more time. One more time. One more time. One more time. In reef recesses, it, it's almost like a tongue twister. You know, it is to try to get my tongue to come back to to, to say tridacna. She's <laughs> so, selling seashells down by the seashore. I think. In the reef recesses, there were enough tridacna clams to furnish fonts for the churches of Christendom. <laughs> I think you skipped sh- the line about rubber baby buggy bumpers in there. <laughs> <laughs> Their shells were ajar, displaying swollen mantles painted like the lips of harlots. I like that. The lips of harlots. From the lips of harlots to my own. Lips of Harlots. That's uh, I got. I'm. That's going to be the title of my autobiography. Lips <laughs> from the of lips. Harlots. From the lips of Harlots. I guess it's. <laughs> I guess I'm glad he didn't say like the clams of Harlots. Ooh, you got to watch that. <laughs> you know, that's also the a great name for a, a band, the Lips of Harlots. The yeah. I'm James Mott, and we're the Lips of Harlots. <laughs> <laughs> Detroit. <laughs> We're back. We love you, Detroit. The lips of Harlot. See, it works. <laughs> okay, where the fuck? See, are I, how about see, I, I? I more see that as like uh, you know Roger Daltrey from the Who is is up on stage and uh, you know for this big reunion tour, and we were the opening band. He says. Thank you, Detroit. <laughs> Give it up to James Mott and the Lips of Harlots. <laughs> the opening band. Jackie says, the reef of Shabsuyam was an intaglio structure with porches of coral, winding couleur, and countless narrow cracks, a swarm with beings waiting in the wings like walk-on players at the opera. When I poked my head into one of these little grottos, anxious fish huddled together snout to snout or molded themselves to the walls. While the spiny rayed animals erected their dorsals in fear, the little caves were plastered with gaudy patches of ascidians, hydrosians, and calcareous algae. As I wandered along the reef, mixed hordes of fish vanished ahead of me, as if retreating into the reef, then reassembled behind. There were yellow-spotted groupers, gold and blue-striped butterfly fish, and a gay unicorn fish with a long horizontal (laughs) horn protruding from its otherwise (laughs) unproposition. How how childish! I don't think I don't think Jackie knew. I don't think Jackie knew what What the term "gay" and how it would be associated with unicorns and rainbows. I was going to say maybe maybe he's at the source of the the whole choice of rainbows for representation of the LGBTQ community. Maybe 
Unicorns don't don't they um do they spew it forth out of their mouth the rainbow or do they depends how happy they are. Enough <laughs> <laughs> <No>, said. <laughs> uh, he says the natives were out in their Sunday dress. Moray eels glowered from crevices and bared their teeth to impress us. They were the concierges of the reef city, and the promenading tenants were not scared of them. My eye fell on an odd object hanging motionless in the water. It looked like a crumpled feather bonnet from an attic trunk of the mad woman of Chaliot. The feathers were barred black and white. All at once, the hat exploded into bristles, the stinging spines of a lionfish. I poked a finger at the venomous quills, taking care not to touch them. The fish did not flinch. It had confidence in its defenses. Ha, ha, ha. He's, you know, here he's just really describing how wild and alive the reef is, right? Do you think he had a thesaurus next to him? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the diction is spectacular. It's very descriptive, but there's a lot of it. I mean, uh, a lot I'm of sure, adjectives. I'm sure he took notes on, <laughs> his, on his little plastic slate. <laughs> it said, blue unicorn thingy. Exactly. But he, had, he knew he couldn't put and, and that then in the book. He, and then he got back on the boat and he uh, you know, cracked open a bottle of, open a bottle of <laughs> cognac. After and the words just cognac, flew, the words started flowed forth. <laughs> yes. He's like, hey, Didi, change that green snaky thing to moray eel, would you? Velvety, lush, verde of the sinuous, lanky creature known as the moray eel. Or Moranide of the Moranide. With its pharyngeal jaws located. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I trudged on, occasionally stopping to press my mask close to the reef, like a child at a candy store window. Each square foot was a microcosm of worms and tiny hairy crabs, flowering slugs and cruising vermin. Sixty feet down, I entered the Alcinarian kingdom, a vertical field of pliant growth shaped like celery plants, each stalk a different hue. Here and there in the hanging garden were tall coral umbrellas, funnel-shaped sponges, and gorgonian screens. Beneath the rainbow celery patch, a tangle of white lines trailed ten feet out the cliff. They were rigid and horny virgulgarians that looked like a slack lump cord on a blue rug. After all this novelty, at a depth of 130 feet, came a shock of recognition. A landscape almost exactly like our customary cliffs at Casillo, Rio, in the Mediterranean. The same small loggias and the dead walls. The same random splatter of ascidians and algae. And the same dusty appearance. The only things missing were the lobsters that lounge on such balconies at home and the red jeweler's coral, 
which oddly enough is not found in coral seas. I do like the picture or the mental image of the kid pressing his face against the candy shop window, looking at all right. the goodies. Yeah, very nice. You know, and is that not the truth that like most people get in the water and the goal is to, you know, see the whole dive site and see the whole reef and see all the big amazing things that there are to see but just like he said if you just literally if you go to any spot on a reef and just sit at that one spot the entire time you're gonna see all this little stuff really come to life and see the millions of things that are in that that one little square foot of reef that you're that you're at well yeah they have uh the live cams of just a cam sitting down at the bottom of a reef that you can watch for 24 7 I have, a, I have a friend here. You know Deb. She yeah, does yeah. that. She watches the, the reef cams. Yeah, they've got channels on <laughs> on TV now. It just is a, a reef cam that you can just play in the background and sit and watch for hours and hours and hours. Sharks had been in sight throughout the dive, he says. As I progressed deeper, they turned faster, making me dizzy as I tried to keep them under scrutiny. There were one or two in every direction, and now, he says, they were closing in. Some swam straight toward me with vacant eyes and then withdrew. When I reached 150 feet, I glanced up. A dozen torpedo-shaped shadows were outlined against the viridescent ceiling. I looked down, 50 feet below. Pale sharks were strolling on a sand slope. I sighted my forgotten companions, naked and far from our boat, surrounded by Red Sea sharks, of whose traits we knew nothing. It struck me that our situation was simply untenable. Out of the roving pack, the biggest shark, an animal about 12 feet long, advanced with seeming deliberation toward the professor. I was 30 feet from Drock, and the shark was approaching him, at an ankle level. What's French for professor? Is it maestro? Le professeur. It's not maestro, eh? <laughs> no, le maestro. Ah. maestro. The sight of a man ogling a reef while a carcanarius sniffed his legs was utterly revolting. I rushed toward them, grunting as loudly as I could through the mouthpiece, but despairing of outcome. Drac heard nothing. When I was 10 feet away from them, the big shark wheeled ponderously and swam away. I patted Drock's shoulder and tried to explain by signs what had happened. He looked at me severely and turned back to the reef. He did not wish to be disturbed again. <laughs> you son of a bitch. What? I tried to bring up a trunk of... Calcareous algae, Jacques. The scholar's sang froid was contagious. I felt strangely reassured about everything. I sank lower, relaxed and receptive. At a depth of 200 feet, the cliff broke off into a 45-degree incline of gray soil. I was disappointed that the pageant was ending in this dull, lifeless bank. At second look, I found the slope extended only 50 feet out to another blue horizon, another drop-off. He says, I was on a corniche laden with fossils and waste that had fallen through the ages from the bustling metropolis above. 
I hovered, contemplating the brink ahead. I stretched my arms and legs in space and greedily inhaled a lungful of thick, tasty air. Between the sibilance of my air regulator, I heard rhythmic grating sounds and the cycles of bubbles rustling overhead. Other human beings were alive nearby. Their commonplace respirations took on a cosmic significance. I was being seized by depth rapture. I knew it, and I welcomed it as a challenge to whatever controls <laughs> I had left. Come at me, bro. <laughs> Come at me, Come bro. Come at me, bro. Do you even depth rapture, bro? Dude. <laughs> Dude, this is so cosmic, man. The bubbles are everywhere, yo. <laughs> Could you imagine if uh, Jockey was like a American suburbanite kid? And dude, the bubbles, man. These bubbles, man. <laughs> You're the bubbles, dude, aren't you? Didi, Didi, my boy. Didi, my boy, man. That's we're changing your name to Bubbles, man. <laughs> He's my man. This here, my boy, Didi. Shock says the Gray Bank, two hundred feet down, was the boundary of reason. Over the precipice lay madness. Danger became voluptuous. My temples pounded, extending my arms like a sleepwalker. I stroked my fins and glided over the edge of beyond. <laughs> That's a pretty amazing description of, of the look of that drop off to nothing. Yeah. To me, you know, being narc can go two ways. It can go that way, which is, <laughs> hey, it's all good. Good, man. You got this. Come and do it. And it can go the other way, which is. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> You've seen it both ways in people. Yes. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's what narcosis... And again, like I was having this discussion in class last night. You know, we were talking about people's dives. How, you know, what's their deepest they've been so far? And, you know, mm -hmm. What's the longest they've been down? And so much of them are describing to me, you know, well, I did my deep dive. You know, we did 127 feet. You know, uh... And they all do it, you know, in their training. It's on air and the, trying to see, you know, their level of narcosis. But I'm like, it, you know, it's four minutes and 126, 127 feet of water. Can you tell that it's hard to see red on the slate? You know, that, that's not really going to give you the full effect of narcosis. Most people, it's a, it's a psychological fear because they've been told so much about narcosis in their basic open water class that if they get anywhere near 100 feet, they think they're just going to be stoned out of their mind at oh, 100, yeah. from 100 to 101. You know, they're gonna be <laughs> Dude, I was so It's like wasted. they just like, like did a, you know, uh, chugged a bottle of Jack Daniels like they were... You know, Nikki Six from Motley Crue in 1980. You know? I, I would tell you that one of my favorite views with taking students is finding that happy piece of being out over that wall. Yeah. And watching it plummet to black. 
right? And being able to maintain that balance and buoyancy at whatever depth that you're at and just cruise like you're like flying along that wall and get those students to like find that comfort and control in that because it is so easy. Like you, you get out over the wall to just let it pull you deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper without your even awareness that you're going there. Right. Right. The attraction and the ability to be distracted is, is great. Yeah. And that's what you're trying to learn to overcome mm-hmm. as a diver who's going to do it long term. That's in it for the long haul. It's like, yeah, I can find the resistance within me to, to be lured into a place where I don't belong yet. Hundreds of white walking canes stuck out from the vertiginous wall. I dropped slowly along a torment of life forms. Witches' heads stared at me. Pale, gelatinous tumors grew on giant sponges, ornamented with spider webs. James, it's not a tumor. It's a gelatinous tumor. <laughs> it's a gelatinous tumor. Get to the chapel now if you don't want a gelatinous tumor. <laughs> I think this could be a whole new section of the Great Dive Podcast is our Arnold impersonations. <laughs> Get to the chapel now. I say, this to, I say this to Julia almost every day. <laughs> Come with me if you want to live and get to the chapel now. And it's not a tumor. As far down as I could see, Untold populations clung along that wall, but they were denied to me. I trimmed off 240 feet down. Son of a bitch. He's at air's toxicity <laughs> point right there. Yeah, he's uh, he's at what uh, he's going to find out you know, later on down the road. <laughs> what are the limitations of of? you know, deep air for all real purposes, right? Well, yeah, he is, he is fucking smashed. He is toasted. He's like, hey, dude, so what you're saying is that in one little dot on my thumb, there could be a whole nother universe of gelatinous tumors and tumor-like... He's Spider looking at those webs. witches' heads. He's looking at those <laughs> witches', witches heads, head. like, you love me, don't you? You're not this... like Simone back <laughs> on the boat with her headphones in the chart room. You love me. Flirting with Falco. <laughs> yeah, I think I think his description and what what he sees. I mean, narcosis, just like having a few cocktails or getting stoned, you let down the wall, you start to see your unconscious, your subconscious expression of your true self. So it makes me wonder what is oh, what is this thing about the yeah. witches? The, you know, so Jacques got a thing for witches. <laughs> Simone, Simone. That might, I mean, this could be tied into Simone, but he's calling yeah. Simone a witch. Simone, put this up. Pointy hat on him, why don't you? <laughs> look out. Freud would have a heyday with this. So, uh, this Simone, s- smack me with this broom a couple of times. <laughs> I have a magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I heard a distant mechanical sigh. One of my companions opening his air reserve valve. I paused. Now I must soar out of here. Pick up my friends and obey the law of sun and air that rules my kind. Now? Why now? He says. 
I stole another minute, clutching a white sea whip and looking down longingly. Then I knew I had an appointment with the second reef. I swore I would design, build, and operate devices that would deliver me to the sunken ridges of the silent world. And later on he did, right? Later on he was, he was building ways for his team to live underwater. And there you go. Well, hey, bon anniversaire, Monsieur Cousteau. <laughs> yeah. Si, feliz años. No, it's feliz cumpleaños. Feliz cumpleaños. And uh, there are many, many more wonderful, amazing stories by the old man JC that we will surely bring to you in due time of the Great Dive Podcast. That was a fun one. Um, looking at all the fun things that we really enjoy on Great Dive Podcast. Shark stories and deep water stories and narcosis and, of course, the team of Jacques Cousteau and Zicalypso. And Simone and Falcon. And Simone. Didi. Didi. The whole gang. All right, monsieur. Would you like to sign me logbook? Oui, oui. Brando. I'll sign. Let me sign, let me sign yours. The calcareous pages of this <laughs> logbook make my Alcinarian ink flow smoothly of the azure sea. Priming with witches' heads and tumorous Gargonian sponges amongst the pages of this memoir of a dive on the Sea de Rouge. La Mer de Rouge. La Mer de Rouge. Merci beaucoup. Well, there's no way I can top that. The, the beauty, the sound. Dude, just chill the fuck out, man. It's all good. Doesn't all have to be French, now does it? All right, everybody. We will see you next week for more Great Dive Podcast fun. Ha, ha, ha. Bonjour. Is it bonjour? Do you say bonjour for goodbye? Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir, Francois. Blah, <laughs> blah,